Welcome back to 64, a chess podcast. I am David coming at you live as always from Copenhagen, Denmark. Joining me on the podcast today is world number nine, Dutch Grandmaster number one, king of chess Twitter, uh, and one of my favorite players. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Grandmaster Anish Giri to the show. How's it going, Anish? Thank you. Thank you for your kind introduction. Doing great. Um, I just want to start by saying that uh, your game against Ding in the last year's candidates, the exchange with Lopez, uh, that that um, that was like one of my favorite games ever. Uh, that was a really sick game. So I don't know how you oh, feel you. about the game. Yeah, it's interesting uh, because a lot of pretty games, they they involve like some ups and downs. Um, for example, one of the prettiest combinations of all time, like many say it's the be- be most beautiful game they've ever seen, the Kasparov Topalov one, the famous from Vikanze. The one where he's chasing the king down. He started off with Kasparov like playing a rather timid way against the Pirk. At some point, he even got worse against the Pirk. And um, just when he sacrificed the rook, Topalov could trade queens and have a safe position. He could even have some advantage if he was very accurate. And only after he made that mistake, things started unfolding very beautifully. So in a way, um, it can be definitely a great game, even with that. And uh, my game with Ding as well, like... The start was really not great. Like I forgot my prep and I got into some trouble. At some point he was, he just chose a few times like a very ambitious way of trying to punish me instead of uh, going for a safe small edge. And then at some point, yeah, he just, uh, it's it sort of gone wrong for him. And then when I started to, like when I got a chance and uh, I could sacrifice a piece, then it got very pretty. But it was not, let's say, you know, it was not like a smooth game from the start. Because I do like smooth games from start. I think that's, that's quite nice. I, I appreciate those uh, a lot. Yeah, but you know, typically when you have like a smooth game from start to finish, then it's it's not going to be the uh, necessarily as memorable. Like, like, what's the chance you destroy? Be. I mean, it could be that let's say you get into that position where you can sacrifice uh, decisively. You get into that position after a very good uh, opening, and uh, such games exist. Like for example, Fabiano has plenty of such games. He won this Sinkfield Cup with seven out of seven at some point, and in that event, like. Most of his games were just from the opening onwards, just one-way traffic. I, I, I think that is really cool. Like you, uh, you know, you, you prepare well, and you sort of outplay your opponent throughout the entire game at every stage of the way. And I think that's yeah, for me, that's the sort of the, the most beautiful there game there can be. But yeah, in, in the end of the day, also the other day I was actually looking at this on the topic of beautiful games. I mean, for what it's worth, uh, I was looking at this. Um, I was preparing a lecture for some uh, amateurs. And I was looking at this so-called, um, how it's called, you know, these Anderson games. Like there is the uh, Evergreen and one more, yeah? I, I, I forgot the English word for this. Like the you immortal have this, game. Immortal, first. immortal. Yeah, yeah, this English one. Immortal and the Evergreen. And like, if they're extremely beautiful, right? And you, everybody has seen them and they're really, really great. But if you look at them, like from objective viewpoint, like really things like it's like not a high quality game like if you judge judged by whatever the average centipon loss as they say in leeches you know if you measure it against the engine then yeah the average centipon loss of the evergreen i mean was pretty pretty high but uh, yeah the beauty in chess you know that's something that is still that is still a thing uh it doesn't have to always be correct now you know on the topic of the of the candidates um obviously you're not playing at the candidates this year um and like what I guess what I'm wondering is, um, first of all, are you rooting for anybody in the candidates just as a chess fan? And second of all, like, what have you, how do you, have, how do you like occupy time that you would have been spending, let's say, to prepare for the candidates now that it's not in your schedule? Interesting. Um, 
if I'm rooting for anyone, oh, there's, there's that intrigue, right? With Carlson making the statement. And you know, when for me, it's like this poker, right? When you, uh, when you are like bluffing or, or, or not, you don't know if the guy's bluffing, at some point, like um, you want the card showdown, right? Um, you want to know, is he bluffing or not? So from that viewpoint, it would be kind of fun if not Firuja won, because then Carlson would have to show his hand. Like, is he actually not going to play? And, you know, it's like one of those cases where you're kind of paying for the bluff. And yeah, the problem is that if it's not a bluff and he's not going to play the World Championship, it's going to suck for all of us, I, I guess. It's not, it's not, I don't think it's great. I mean, I, I guess it's better if the best player also is a World Champion. Uh, I, I guess. Um, I'm not 100% sure because you have other sports where it's not the case, but I, I do think it's probably better for chess. Um, so, like, I, I wouldn't be happy to see that, but I, I would be just curious, sort of, you know, that that that, that moment where we, we make him show his cards. Are you actually... So, yeah, I would I would kind of like to see not Firuja in that sense for, for that. And in terms of, like, more serious, in terms of chess, so many great players there. Uh, obviously, Firuja, of course, youngster, um, was world number two briefly. But also, Fabiano is again there, uh, Ding Liren as well. Nepomneshi, of course, uh, still uh, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, and some, I would call them dark horses, like, uh, uh, well, of course, Hikaru is a special story, but also uh, Duda and Rapport, really, like, I, I hope I mentioned everyone, uh, a lot of players, but yeah, I, basically every player, of course, is, is a great player. Um, it's hard to say, I don't have personal favorites, you know, I'm, I'm kind of competing with these players. Um, I, I can't get too emotional about it, <laughs> but but if I had to pick, like, the one who I feel is, like, the strongest, I would have to say it really would depend on the shape. Like the Ding at his best shape is a stronger player of all. Fabi at his best shape is the best player, uh, maybe in the world even. Uh, when Fabi was on a roll, like the force, like it's even more impressive than what Magnus does. And, uh, but even anyone, even when Rapport was on the roll in the Grand Prix, it was looking really good. So. Yeah, no no, it's for, absolutely. Um, and yeah, now that you're, now that you're kind of, uh, you're, well, you're not in the candidates, um, have you been have you been spending that time you would have spent for your upcoming tournaments like say Norway chess chessball masters like like I guess this is going to be a follow up to really what I wanted to ask you because um you're the first uh, super grandmaster I've had on my show and um I've always wondered like what does a super grandmaster actually do um in terms of chess work like what's your like day of like work look like at the chessboard like 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 your training schedule I guess yeah it's a good question uh, I think a lot of the time is uh, spent preparing uh, openings because it's very hard to improve with other aspects of the game. Like at this point, all the like the low hanging fruit has been picked up. Uh, I let's I hope I know all the basic end games like and all the thematic ideas in the most common structures. You know, I know that you have you can second exchange on C three in the Sicilian. Um, and uh, you know you go f four g five g four in the King's Indian all that. And it's kind of hard to improve while, of course, it's tempting to get uh, the game off to a good start, whether it's with the white pieces or the black pieces. So I think that's maybe one of the reasons why most top players spend a lot of time uh, somehow related to the opening. Uh, but other than that, there is sort of a, like a natural way of trying to improve a chess. You just follow the games um, of other top players. You are... Um, Sometimes if you're curious, you analyze them a little bit deeper. You also play online. I think that that's always good, some practice. 
some tactics as well. I think nothing wrong with that at any at any level. I think even the strongest players still uh, have the moments of weakness and the moments of sharpness. So I think it's always possible. In terms of like how much time per you know per each of those, it really depends. Uh, sometimes I do training sessions where I look almost exclusively at the opening, uh, especially if it's not too close to a tournament. Because if it's too close to a tournament and you spend like the entire day for two weeks looking only at the opening, you get slightly uh, cut off from reality you start forgetting like what chess is about it's a practical game and that's like most of the ga games are decided by uh, like unforced errors and some other stupidities and not by opening prep so like i try not to do it too much before the tournament but sometimes like it's good i enjoy like to have a couple of weeks training session where you look like almost only at the openings that's kind of fun um while uh, if i'm yeah if if, if it's before a tournament I definitely try to look at the more the practical side of things so try to um, prepare for concrete opponents and um, try to make sure i'm in shape it's very hard but i'm trying to make sure now i there's something you said that was very interesting on the the late night podcast because um, i i listened to that um like a couple of days ago in preparation for this and you said something that i never really heard before from another top player which is that like you feel that if you look at yourself from 10 years ago, you can't you can't recognize that player that you feel like you've gotten so much better. On the other hand, every other player at the top 10 is getting much better and much better. Um, I guess in the context of that, uh, at what point do you think that like you will stop improving as a chess player? Yeah, I'm not sure even when I said that if, if that's entirely true. Um... I was thinking about it a little bit, and there is a counter argument for that as well. Because sometimes you see some games of yours, and you think like, "Well, that was that was good." And I, I would say the understanding of the game probably grows. You know, it's a straight line, just um, from the start of your career to finish. You just keep gaining more knowledge, right? So you keep gaining more knowledge, and that has to reflect in your understanding. While just um, result is also affected by practical skills. So decision making, the time spending, like time, I think in general, people pay little attention to time spending. If you look like in the databases, many databases, they don't even put the number of um, minutes you spent on a move. But like the entire game is all about time spending. Like if I was to play chess without lim time limit, it would be a completely different game. So part time is like such a vital part of the game. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you have to play fast. You can play slowly, but I'm just saying that I think that it's a huge aspect. So yeah, the, the practical side, um, at some point you reach a stage, I guess, when the practical, uh, the downfall of your practical skills due to lack of energy uh, will uh, yes, also start catching up with you and the uh, knowledge you gain is, uh, is no longer as, as uh, yeah compensating for this. And also, as I said, the opponents also gaining the knowledge as well. So yeah. yeah. At what point am I going to like start declining in my chest strength? If that's the question, I hope if I keep working kind of hard and so on, it will be like for most people, like I don't know, after 45 or something like this, 40, 45, maybe. I hope you never decline in creating strength. I hope you're, you're <laughs> no, no, but every it's, year it's gets stronger possible. and stronger. Yeah, I also hope so, but it's not possible. That's not how life works. You know, the sun rises and then it dawns and so on. Yep. <laughs> but it's, it's early. Sorry for that. Now, um, you're playing uh, two tournaments in Norway. You're playing Chessable Masters. Are you going to be playing that at home or are you going to be going to Oslo for that? Yes, yeah, so the first one, I'm playing Chessable Masters. That's from home. And uh, the Stavanger tournament, that's an uh, over-the-board tournament. A classical chess and Armageddon, that's a, that's a trip to Oslo. Right. I just wondered because um, because the uh, the Chessable Masters 
Uh, I know that like Chess24 has been doing some stuff in the studio with these. So I was just wondering if maybe some people would be going to the studio for that. Yeah, the idea is uh, actually pretty simple this year. So they've got like three sub cycles within the a year cycle. You've got like two regular tournaments. These are played completely online. And then a major tournament to which you qualify through these regular ones and major and wildcards, of course. And the major is over, like not over the board, it's live. It's going to be live on the screen. Then you again got two regulars and the major and again, two regulars and the major. So now after we finished last major, it's it's a turn for two regulars. So the first two regulars are going to be played um, uh, online. It's very often that the system is a lot easier than it looks, but it's never properly explained and people seem to be confused. Yeah, I, I have been a little confused. To be honest, I think that, well, you know, no disrespect to the Play Magnus group, of, of course. You are a recent ambassador and I'm sponsored by Chessable. Um, so, you know, they're our, our best friends. But um, I do think that I, I kind of wonder, like, now that, you know, there's so many o- over-the-board tournaments again, like, what is the, the role of these online tournaments basically in the context of the whole greater tournament cycle in, like, professional chess? Well, I think it's pretty good. Uh, like, you have to realize that professional chess is driven a lot by the prize fund and um, as long as that is in place uh, and uh, also if the best player in the world currently rank rank number one magnus carlson is playing it sort of guarantees a turnout so uh, i think i think the the tour is doing very well in that sense i mean the prices are very good um and uh, yeah the, the, there is the challenge of that uh, and playing online has a lot of a lot of ups as well you don't have to travel you save a lot of you know, a lot of unnecessary, uh, yeah, just unnecessary time going places, f- traveling, um, getting acclimatized or whatever. Like if you play from your home environment, that is convenient as well. Um, it's different, of course. But if we look at the current chess landscape and we look at the events that exist, I think the Magnus Store or the Champions Chess Store, as it's called, um, is the one that has the strongest footing at the moment. It, it has the best player playing and it has as far as i can see the the best price fund uh, if you if, especially if you yeah look at the price fund uh, whatever divided by number of days you play let's say so i think it's 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 the strongest uh, tour right now i genuinely think so and that's why also i am participating in it and that's also largely why i'm uh, ambassador for the play Magnus group and uh, what do you think about this uh, Rapid Chess Championship? Because I see you've played you play in that a lot as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's the other, that's the enemy. <laughs> the chess.com doing a, a weekly thing. That's that's really great. Um, they've also upped the price fund a lot compared to Title Tuesday. And uh, it's uh, also sort of rapid, like 10 plus zero, so no increment. And it's weekly, so it's very convenient. You can play if you feel like, you don't play if you don't feel like. I was surprised with how little players play. I mean, you know... I don't understand. Are they like spoiled or they don't know what's going on? Because uh, you have a shot at uh, some nice prize money and it's weekly. So, okay, if you keep trying every week, there is a high chance one day you succeed, I guess. Although I don't know how statistic works. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. <laughs> so <laughs> the more ch- shots you have, the more likely you get a prize. And uh, yeah, what are they doing? Like anyway, chess players, they're playing chess, right? So I don't know. I, I think it's a great tournament. I'm happy to play them whenever I have time. Uh, I haven't, I only want, yeah, I haven't skipped one that I didn't have reason to skip. Like I, I, I'm a chess player. So if I, if I have time, I, I play it. Um, 
And I was a bit surprised that, that there are not more players participating, uh, which is why they've even included now all Grandmasters can play. And so there will be more players, which is great. I don't know if you're going to answer this question, honestly, but for these online events, do you do like serious prep for those compared to the overboard stuff? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, yes, definitely. I, I think that that's the thing of the past where people took uh, classical chess more seriously than uh, other things. And I think that basically there are two driving forces, at least that's how it is for me and most colleagues I know. And I just again repeat that. I think that's the, the fact that the the, ch the highest challenge is there. So the best players play. And um, so the world, world champion plays. And the fact that the prize funds are very, very good. I mean, if you face the best players and you're playing for the same kind of money, why wouldn't you spend the same kind of effort preparing for something that's online uh, and rapid as you would for classical tournament? Um, I don't really see the, the difference in, in that sense. I mean, for me, it's better to play a Blitz tournament uh, with the best players in the world than classical with uh, with not the best players in the world. I don't so, see. I don't see why we have to attach ourselves to a certain time control. It's it's really yet to be seen which time control is the is the better one. Well, right, because if you look at let's say Hikaru, for example, I think a big criticism of him was that oh well, he he's only an online player, and now like he's re he's retired. He's you know he's scared to play classical, and sure enough, now he's in the candidates. So. I, yeah, for sure. But the word classical is also like, um, it implies certain superiority, although not necessarily. Um, but uh, there, there is sort of this notion by some that classical is sort of the thing and the rest is like extra. But I think it's changing um, and it, it will be redefined. Um, it is getting redefined as we speak. I mean, it, it's sort of, we are, we have sort of, many live under an uh, agreement like that that the classical chess let's say one and a half hour per game or whatever is like that is like they agreed you know but we've decided it's not like four hours is not half an hour we've decided it's like one and a half why we decided that i mean why is not four hour per game then better you know what i mean like we've just decided traditionally that one and a half is the way to go maybe that was the case for the way chess has been before and maybe it's then not the case for the chess the way chess is now. So I, I don't really, but just the name classical, it gives you that feel like this is sort of the stuff, like the main, you know? Uh, but yeah, you can re rename it. <laughs> or you can call it, I don't know, long games, middle games, short games. And then middle games sounds like the most, uh, the most normal format because the other is long and the other is short, right? So it's just a way of, uh, of defining it. I, I don't really see. Uh, and I, I think we... Okay, the, currently the reason it's main is because the World Championship match has the most prize fund and the best player plays. If the best players and all the best players suddenly agree that, okay, we are out of this whole nonsense, we are only playing rapid and uh, the sponsors are there and the best players are there, the classical is completely gone uh, in no time. So I, I, I think we are yet to see what's going to happen. And as we see now, that the rapid is definitely growing more and more. Do you think um, chess is going to look different in like 20 years from now? Oh, 100%. 20 years for sure. Um, it's kind of... Well, in general, it's though I have to say, in general, like I find the way progress is moving very slow. I have a feeling they're like spoon feeding us um, updates. So you've got like iPhone, like <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. Like they definitely could do iPhone 15, like five years ago, I'm sure. But they're just trying to make money of us and they sell us like one version of it. And I think it's like moving way to slow the progress. If you think like 10 years back, honestly, it was not so different. 2012, like, I mean, at some point, the smartphone became a thing okay that was a huge change in life otherwise i don't see it like a big deal 
what changed. Uh, in that sense, I'm afraid that 20 years also, we're not going to be flying, uh, uh, flying, you know, in space and stuff like this, because like it's so slow. And we are not going to move live on, Mar on Mars and stuff. We will probably have like better LED screen or whatever, you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I'm not sure uh, how world will change. But chess, chess for sure, yeah. Like this, the engines get like stronger, stronger and stronger. The theory is getting more and more exhausted. And um, yeah, I'm, I have no idea what it will be like. Um, and 20 years is a very long time. Like 2002 was really long ago. So I, I'm not sure uh, what chess will look like. I hope it will still be a relevant thing. Um, we had like some some imaginations like of, of that, some fantasies. Like if you imagine a world in which you are having this uh, chip yeah, on you or, or like some kind of Google Glass type of thing, which is like uh, highly advanced. So like you wear it and you know everything. You have the Google Maps in you and all the stuff. And um, in that world, okay, you want to play chess, but in order to play chess, you have to take that device off, yeah, let's say, or switch it off. So then like you enter a room and you switch off your like, because otherwise you would just know everything, right? So you switch it off and then you play and the spectators, like, do they also switch it off or not? Like, it's kind of, so in that reality where you are like, whatever, having a chip or ultimate Google Glass, it's interesting whether chess will be still relevant. Yeah, because in order to play it, you have to kind of switch it off while you always have it on. So I don't know, I'm not sure. But it's a very far. I think till we have these chips or a really good Google Glasses, I think it will take many years. I guess I, what I also meant by that question was um, in terms of like the professional chess landscape. By the way, very nice cop, famous effing legend. Shout out mm. to Kamsky. Um, I've got I, a lot of Chess 24 merch. I love it. <laughs> that's one of the best. Uh, one of the best clips I think in the history of chess. Um, the the Gata one. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. fantastic. Um, but yeah, I guess what I meant to say is like um, in terms of professional chess. Do you think that these like rapid tournaments, like I, I guess, do you think that will be the norm in like ten to twenty years? I said twenty years just because I was thinking maybe in terms of generationally speaking, like you would think maybe in twenty years, maybe Magnus isn't uh, the best player oh, in like the that. world. Yeah, yeah. No, then maybe I would say like maybe like six years, let's say, yeah, to make sure that we don't have chips implanted. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, I think it's natural for sure. Uh, if you look at uh, what viewers want, if you look at what commentators, you know. The commentator's perspective because essentially like if you look at chess as a show and that's what uh, it probably is yeah like i in a sense then and also you look at the classical chess like okay let's be real yeah if the games were really high quality and fantastic okay like it's really not often the case like if you look at for example last events there are blunders also in classical chess and people have like 25 minutes left and they still make they leave rooks hanging Time is not everything. Like the, the feeling of time pressure, it gets to you. If you have 19 minutes in a game where you started with two hours, you feel that urge that you are under time pressure already when you have 19 minutes, most players do. Uh, you have that feeling also when you are under two minutes in a five-minute game, you know, like, but if you in a five-minute game, you suddenly got 19 minutes, you would feel very calm, right? So it's like, it's the relative. Uh, so you, you somehow you still make mistakes in classical chess, so I don't really see like uh, why people would have to sit there for so long uh, and wait for the, uh, and also why it would only be one game a day where people have so much time to prepare. And um, if you have too much time to prepare, it's also not good because you start, uh, yeah, you, you know, 
your ambitious ideas that you have, you start seeing problems in them and you start doubting and you go for the safer things. Like the more time you have for prep, like I think the more you're likely to, to go for safe stuff or that's at least how I see it at the top level lately. So I, I don't, I don't really see why, uh, why in the long run classical chess should be the thing. I don't really see it uh, like logically. I would be happy to see it. Like, I don't think it would be bad for me. I think I'm, I'm like, I like classical chess. I like time to prep. I like time to think, but I don't see logically why it has to be the best, the, the way to go. I don't see it. Yeah. It's a very, it's, 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 um, I, I think certainly for a lot of fans, like rapid, um, like, like on chess.com, for example, the 10 plus zero is by far the most popular time control. And exactly. there's, there's exactly. basically also, no it, tournaments there. Well, they started the Rapid Chess Championship, right? right. With the 10 plus zero. Yeah, and uh, it's working fine. Um, you can also, okay, add increment if you want the, you know, for for uh, for there to be more integrity of the time scramble or whatever, you can you can have the increment. But yeah, I mean, for, like, yeah, for, for many players, for those who, for top players, but also for fans and for amateurs or for club players, yeah, I think the especially as chess is getting like younger, newer people come, the notion of tradition, of course, is changing. And people who grew up watching Magnus um, play bullet games and people who grew up watching the Champions Chess Tour, they will think that's the normal thing. They will not think the classical chess. They will think like, okay, it's weird. They still do this classical stuff. Uh, while, of course, people who grew up on Fischer Spassky and uh, on the statements of the players at the time that said that Rapid is, is nonsense and Blitz is harmful for you, they will think it's still the case. So yeah. I guess it's natural. There's natural shift towards... Like, I think it's very natural that there's going to be a shift sooner or later. Chess is a very traditional field, but like sooner or later, it's moving towards more Rapid, I guess. Now, on the topic of classical chess, I did want to touch upon this a little bit because I assume you're going to be playing in the Olympiad. I think you mentioned you will mm -hmm. be on board one, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who are the other GMs in the Dutch team? Is it like Erwin? Jordan? Yeah, we've got. I think it's already published. We've got our team published. We we have uh, Jordan, of course, twenty seven hundred player these days. Uh, we have um, Erwin Lamy, who is also my uh, longtime trainer and second, still very active as a player and uh, twenty six hundred uh, about well about twenty six hundred. Uh, we've got Max Warmerdam, who is a younger guy, um, and like age of like. 20, I think, something, 21 maybe. And uh, he's um, 2600 rated as well. Of course, we have Benjamin Bock as well, who lives in States. Uh, he is studying in one of the St. Louis universities. Uh, so combining chess with studies. And um, he's also a 2600 player. He's also playing. Um, so did we have one, two, three, four, five? Yeah, that's, so that's, that's our team, five people. So Bach's going to be a reserve. No, no, I kind of forgot to mention him. Not forgot. I mentioned him last because maybe he did, like I'm seeing him a bit less. But uh, yeah. I think uh, I don't actually know the board order. I think the ratings um, of Max, uh, Erwin, and Bok are very close to each other. And anyway, our lineup doesn't have to be impacted by ratings. So I'm not sure what is the order. I don't even think that our captain has made up his mind yet. But yeah, these three players are. Um, I mean, we could also change up the order and put uh, whatever me or Jordan on a lower board if we want to to do that. But let's say if we try to do it um, in a conventional way, I assume that right now I'm still higher rated than Jordan, and so I'll be one, Jordan two, and these three, uh, it's it's hard to say. Um, they're all good players, uh, but ratings are just very close. They're all around 2620, I think. You can also have uh, Benjamin Box microwave um, as a... Yeah, uh, Bok has become famous huh? now, a famous streamer. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you also, you used to stream. You're not really streaming that much anymore. You do sometimes. 
yeah yeah i will uh i will keep that up uh, as well uh, i will uh, keep up some regular streaming but um i had a period where i was streaming like quite extensively uh, i wanted to sort of it, it also seemed a little unclear to me what the chess landscape will look like so i wanted to try out streaming to see if that's something for me it always looks so easy in general any other activity that's not yours i don't know how it's for you but like you it always looks so easy uh, you know what the others do but uh, yeah i've encountered a uh, few things uh, during streaming like it's not so simple i realized like first of all my voice just after a few days of streaming just three hours of talking three hours it's just my voice starts to disappear so like <laughs> i physically cannot like it seems i feel like i need maybe some to drink more tea or whatever but like i physically cannot do what hikaru does speak so long uh, so consistently and uh, other things as well like it's so hard it's so much harder to play chess streaming than it looks like when you watch hikaru um because i i think it's simply multitasking i i tried the easiest i see is when i do something like puzzle rush if I puzzle rush without talking, I am just so much faster than when I puzzle rush while talking. Like the brain multitasking, even if uh, it's easy and natural, it's still some percentage of your brain, I guess, and just yeah, it's lost on on chess. Um, maybe if you get really used to it, the, like the you can play really well. But also the thing is, okay, let's say I play. If I play very weak opponents, it's kind of boring for me because I don't feel any excitement. If I play strong opponents, I'm I'm. I'm bound to lose at some point, some games, and it's kind of very, uh, not a very pleasant sensation losing while streaming. And you see all the other streamers also like so disturbed. It's so hard like to, I don't know why, like you have to say something and you are annoyed. You don't want to say like talk in general. When you lose, you don't want to talk. You just want to play again. <laughs> and there are like, you will always have some people in the chat who you, you're not supposed to moderate them because they're not saying anything really bad, but they are saying something that annoys you. So you have to let it be, and yeah, it's it's like it's not terrible, but if it's something on a regular basis, it's also not like you know, it, it's a thing that many I, I've like I think many people don't stream because of that. I nobody speaks about it publicly, but I know a few people who just say I don't stream because I don't like losing on stream. It's just very annoying, um, and um, yeah, and even Hikaru, you know, like he literally doesn't care, yeah, but yeah. you know. It's, I literally don't care, Chad. No, no, I literally no. don't care. No, but okay, Hikaru, of course, great. He loses the least of all uh, on stream, but still, like, it's so annoying, um, the, the whole vibe to, to lose on stream. So um, there are these things that make streaming also uh, challenging. And also, of course, if you want to make a good living of it, uh, you, well, you have to do consistency. You have to do certain things that are not that exciting for you certain collabs that are less exciting for you because they're good for the growth certain collabs like for example with Vidit, yeah, i have to collab with Vidit all the time very annoying <laughs> very annoying or with no, uh <laughs> with uh mediocre chess podcasts uh sponsored by chess exactly exactly no but i'm okay jokes aside of course but i mean i, I was serious i mean Vidit and podcast is a joke but like you do have to do some like some collabs some uh, uh preparing you have to like always think of um you know you have to get your thumbnails done by someone uh, you know you have to tell them in advance all the stuff like so many little things some someone edit your uh, stuff like it's it's kind of a job streaming it's it's a job it's not so it's not so easy it's not just somebody turns on the camera crushes everyone and uh, chat loves him it's it's difficult um, difficult job uh, so yeah uh, i'm not a professional streamer in short 
It's but honestly, you know, it's just like watching people play chess, like me as a, you know, um, but honestly, you know, I watched like these super grandmasters play chess. I said, this is easy. And guess what? It's a really easy game, actually. And you say you, you, you haven't had a good challenge. Well, I need you should, you should play me because I will, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really good. Honestly, you know, when we talk about the Olympiad, I mean, probably if Levon didn't come to the American team, I said this like last week to Mr. Dodgy, but if, Le if Levon didn't join the team, I'd probably be bored for or something on the American team. So, you know, I mean, it is what it is, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, that's, that's the way the cookie crumbles, that's life. But, uh, you know, I'm definitely, you know, I'm sure you've played me a bunch of, no. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. I'm a exactly mediocre chat. club player, I guess. Exactly. Chat, right, chat, right, chat. Yes, but Hikaru, that's another thing with him. Like, uh, you know, if I was watching Benjamin Bach play Rapid Chess Championship and he's just silent for four minutes, like just calculating. And then he loses the game and he like hits his desk and immediately goes to the analysis. And then Hikaru is just like, you know, rambling about, oh, does, does C3 work, chat? Does C3 work? Does C3 yeah, work, chat? Yeah, yeah no, it's, uh, it's difficult because you want to do your best whatever game you play. And I was thinking about it the other day because it's so fascinating. Like, what is it that causes your emotions within a chess game like what is it for example that you enjoy about winning and what is it that you don't like about losing because i was thinking so is let's say let if we look at like the problem of losing because the moment you get rid of the problem of losing you know you're you become the ultimate chess god because losing is like a problem because uh, it's hard to play after losing you're you you don't um sometimes play for a win because you're afraid of losing so like, what is it about losing that people don't like and why they hit the desk? Is it? It's not just because people are watching. Because sometimes you play on a completely anonymous account. Nobody is watching. It's only you. Nobody else knows about the game. You're not going to talk about the game to anyone. And you're still annoyed about losing. So that's definitely not the others, right? It's something within you. And, like, it's very interesting. I don't know. It's very interesting. It's it's uh, fascinating. And the, the joy of winning also, like, it's not just that others tell you, wow, you're great. It's just something within yourself. And, like, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Fascinating. I'm not sure, like, someone of, like, your chess caliber, I'm not sure you would get there if you didn't have that hatred of losing, right? Because that's, like, uh, that you oh, need yeah. to have that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and love for winning, right? Because um, if, if you don't love the winning, then the whole equation makes no sense for you anymore. Right. Yeah, for sure. You have to have the drive. Uh, have you always had that? Because you've been described as a chess prodigy. And did you always have that from a young age? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess every player must uh, must like winning and hate losing. I guess that's, that's part of it. Uh, I think, in fact, comparatively to others, to many other top players, I am like less result-oriented. So I get less like thrilled about winning and less um, disturbed by losing compared to other top players, but compared to like regular people who don't play chess, of course, yeah, it's, it's, it's very necessary. I mean, uh, you have to like, to make this game like job of your life, you have to take it insanely seriously, right? Otherwise, uh, if you just think it's a game and you literally don't care, you're not gonna, you're not gonna wanna do that. <laughs> I literally don't care. That's like one, of, that's another one of those, those, those memes that is just- Yeah, know. but it's amazing, yeah, the, like, the legacy of Hikaru's as a streamer um but he i think he embraces it and it's i think it's it's good uh i, I think it's all it's all it's a sign that he is appreciated and uh, uh hikari is like it's just fantastic also that he qualified to the candidates one of the one of the most remarkable chess personalities of our century yeah i i mean hikaru is literally the reason i got into chess i've been watching him mm, yeah. um i heard like, that from many people yeah like it's just crazy like i 
you know, I, I think without Hikaru, I would have never be, like played chess. And now to see him like qualify for the candidates. I remember also just during the pandemic when he was, he and Magnus were, were dueling it out on this Magnus Carlsen tour. I mean, mm -hmm. that was just, that was really special um, for a guy. He's like playing with XQC and all these people at one moment. And then he's also like just duking it out with the best people in the world. And I, I was, you know, I know that people have their own criticisms of Hikaru as a, you know, a person or whatever, but I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I can't speak on that. No, but I, I mean, as, as far as, I understand like the sort of criticism it's all based on like him when losing right mm -hmm. like he gets yeah upset or angry when losing and he can sort of i don't know say something annoying to someone that's just uh yeah very common i mean Korshna had many many cool stories about him losing and other many many contemporary players also uh I mean, it's not like somebody killed somebody. Uh, he sorry, he can't ever kill somebody's cat. Yeah, let's not also exaggerate. Right. Uh, I mean, some kind of video that he was like fighting once with some with Eric or something like, <laughs> like kind of as a joke. Like they were after some party. Like, but, I mean, of course yeah, they had the issue. Spins it. Yeah, yeah, and of course they had some kind of thing about the channels being blocked because okay and stuff. And like you have all this like stories about the what is it like claim? You have you've got these claims on YouTube like uh, copyright mm -hmm. claim and stuff. I mean, he wanted to give Eric a warning or whatever. Like, and, and I understand that, yeah, it's it's getting competitive. And like, he uh, says that flagging is not cool when they flag him, and he's okay for him to flag. Like, it's all it's all like fun and games. I mean, I, I think it's all within the. It's not like Hikaru is. Like, I mean, it's just it's just part of part of the game. And some people are more competitive than others, and some react in a different way to losing. And yeah, I think it's it's so it's all good. I I don't think Hikaru has any issues with his image or whatever. Great guy. Right. No, I, I mean, yeah, it's a guy I would love more than anything to have on the podcast, honestly. So for um, sure, for sure. And he's done like so much. Uh, and it's really remarkable because there are no other such person who manages to combine professional chess, it, like in the best meaning of, of that world, word, and professional streaming as well. And both of these professions to a complete professional extreme, right? Like you can say, okay, Magnus sometimes streams. You can say that. Uh, Andrew Tank sometimes plays well or whatever, yeah, or like, um, but um, uh, Andrew Tank like plays well, let's say, in competitive events, yeah, like in Bullet or Blitz events online. But just, you don't have a person who is like an absolute top player and at the same time an absolute top streamer. And Hikaru is just one. So in that sense, for sure, very yeah. cool. Um, I guess on that note, I do want to move to this new section of the podcast, Question Time. Uh, I asked my... Uh, followers on twitter at 64 podcast by the way um i asked my followers to ask questions for who i called the king of twitter um uh, because you, you got a pretty good twitter presence before we begin how did you much. get Thank your you twitter presence like like what did that what was like the whole like why yeah basically? uh so i got it set up i think by my dad when i was a kid uh i got a few things set up by my dad like a bank account uh, <laughs> a twitter account uh uh yeah uh he was kind of helping me ma manage my things he was buying me flights and stuff like this i was too small and uh, uh, and there was a phase also in my life when like i was so busy with events and simos that my dad would tell me a day before where i'm going i wouldn't even know he'd be like tomorrow you go to spain i'm like oh he's like yeah for a simo i'm like okay and then he would say that oh tomorrow you go to france for french league i'm like okay <laughs> So uh, I was kind of a little small, and uh, so he was helping me very much. And he set up set up an account for me. Um, I so at, at first I was just writing. I guess I I would have to check my old tweets, but something like probably like looking forward to play the French league, you know. And all had a great simul in Spain, things like that. And uh, then at some point, I kind of started liking 
uh, having that extra layer to the game of chess where you where you try to talk to your opponent a bit before the game or after the game uh, try to to use psychology to your advantage a little bit because it was kind of fun and i saw it works um i saw it works i saw how i'm playing well against other people and how it seems that they're slightly disturbed not in a bad way but like you know um, or like let's say when you tweet about an upcoming game you raise the stakes a little bit right and if you handle that better than your opponent then it could be to your advantage so i, I think that that kind of thing i noticed may i th i think uh, and also it was kind of fun i like to i like to sort of make jokes and for jokes you need a certain frame right like you need topics like it's hard to say like come up with a joke and uh tweeting uh, to other players that like a frame for me it's like a frame around which i can try to build a joke so i like that and then i saw people like that a lot as well and um, organizers also appreciate uh, uh, when there is more excitement around the game so i started to tweet much more actively and having all these banters with my um, friends and um, and then at some point i realized that it's going to be a thing where sooner or later all the chess players are going to be forced to be on twitter and i started feeling lucky that i'm already there and i don't need to change my habits and now you see like uh, all players having to get an account uh, on twitter if they play uh, a champions chess tour let's say and that's clearly a, a normal way of, of moving forward because the organizers they of course uh, are looking for exposure of their event so i i think it was uh, at some point i realized it was, it was anyway an inevitable thing and it's good that i already have it so that's a bit why yeah well on that note uh, i'm gonna just you know start asking so these are a couple of just like three or four of my favorite questions that i that were asked um we're gonna start with uh mr dodgy um you asked mr dodgy question i think it's only fair that mr dodgy asks you one uh, yeah you know i'm i'm savoring sorry to interrupt i'm savoring uh, the podcast with mr dodgy or like sometimes you know you, you have that one movie or whatever you want to watch and you are keeping it for like the best moment so i keep that podcast with mr dodgy uh i haven't listened to it on purpose i'm going to listen to it at some point uh, i'm like cherishing that moment when i'm going to so i don't I know how he answered it. my question yeah i, I definitely I, will yeah uh it's uh, he gave a good answer i will also say mm -hmm. that you know when mr dodgy came on um this is actually something you mentioned before about you know how hard it is like when you like want to stream because for the podcast i i make the the music and all the graphics for my podcast and um when, when Mr. Dodgy came out, I was like, I need to make some like epic new intro for the podcast. And I was originally, I was like, maybe I'll just hire someone. And I looked at the prices to make something. I was like, oh no, I can't, I can't afford this. <laughs> you know, I literally can't afford this. So uh, I ended up just making my own. So, so, you know, the intro you're going to hear from Mr. Dodgy and all episodes going forward. I mean, I made that. Um, so yeah. I yeah. I think I heard, I, I think I saw that on Twitter. It was very cool. Uh, you, you play yourself an uh, instrument, right? Yeah. I played, I played a guitar. I played everything yeah, on wow. there. I programmed it or played it. So. Wow, very cool. It's nice when you do everything uh, of your own podcast, right? The graphics and like, that's really cool. Yeah. Although I, I may get a new, uh, a new logo. I've been speaking to people at Chessable to make something, to make something cool, like uh, mm -hmm. in the same style. Anyway, I just want to mention that. So, uh, uh, but yeah, it's a great episode. And if those of you who haven't listened to the episode, Mr. Dodgy, you definitely should because Mr. Dodgy, um, I'm, I'm getting distracted now, but speaking about Twitter personalities, I mean, Mr. Dodgy, the mm -hmm. thing that really surprised me, and I don't want to blow off his Twitter persona, but he's so much nicer when you speak to him than what you would think he is on Twitter. Because he's like the sarcastic guy on Twitter, and like from my experience, yeah. he's extremely nice, like genuine. Person. I wish to, I wish to think the same about myself, but maybe I've turned into that evil person that I'm pretending <laughs> to be on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, but Mr. Dodgy, I think it's clearly like his whole Twitter being is just him trying to make jokes and be right. entertaining, right? That's how I see it. Yeah. Well, he, I don't know if this. Let's see if this is a joke. Because he asks, um, 
Is yeah. Anish worried about excitable fans ambushing him in Chennai? Also, which hotel is he staying at? Yeah, this is definitely a joke. Uh, on that topic, I remember once somebody asked something like that as a joke to Magnus at some event. I don't remember. It was long, long, long ago. And I think he got a very, very rough response along the lines of, I don't remember what it was, but like um, that sort of the, uh, yeah, the security of a player, uh, you know, has to be taken very seriously, stuff like that. But uh, non, um, in terms of, uh, no, the joke is, of course, funny. Ms. Doji is um, talking about big following of, of chess in uh, in India. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's really cool. Uh, on a serious note, like chess fans are, it's actually really interesting. I used to meet a lot of chess fans who are like clearly the Fisher Spassky generation. They were like really old or really, really young. But at some point, chess and schools became a thing. But now I see like really relatively many, like the other day I was spoken to like four times on a day by people who are like really young or like my age, actually, not really, like they're just my age. And they're probably in chess because of the streamers, you know, uh, and that that's that's really cool. And uh, yeah, they're all, always usually usually the ones I meet are like the nicest people. And you know, just, yeah, and chess fans journalists are really really nice people. Um, if you look at um, comp- and very introvert, also very often, right? Because chess mm-hmm. is an activity you do is, um, often um, in a more quiet setting. So yeah, that, that's also. Unlike, let's say, you know, when you have other sports where people are like, shout, where shouting is the, is the thing. And then, of course, also the, sh- the fans are more more shouty and it's normal. In Chelsea, I think the fans are like really, usually your average fan is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very nice guy. So I'm looking forward. I, I have noticed that it's particularly you, you, there is a real affinity between Indian chess fans and you. I was wondering if you could speak on that a little bit, like why you think that is. Yeah, I think the main reason is that um, chess... Uh, is not um, evenly followed geographically. So um, chess is not as popular in, um, I don't know, a random country like, uh, well, I, I don't know, Holland, let's say, not random, let's just say chess is not as popular in Holland as it is in India or um, within countries there is difference, you know, it's like uh, it, it is popular in some post-Soviet Union countries, obviously because of traditions, it has a boom in um, India. Um, it's going better and worse uh, depending on the time frame in certain countries. In Holland, it was uh, it had certain boom at some point. Uh, there were a lot of events, even the Antiman and so on. Um, and and so I think most chess players have a lot of Indian chess fans, just because there are a lot of Indian chess fans. I think that's that's one of the really the main reasons. And the other why me uh, more so perhaps than others, though that has to do a lot with the fact that I started streaming. And on YouTube, again, there is like, yeah, there, there is like a limited number of people that follow chess from a, a single European country, yeah, let's say like uh, Germany or Holland or UK. And uh, there are like large audiences uh, from India, of course, on YouTube, from States and from uh, Latin America. I have significant amount of followers in States and Latin America as well. Like I have the other day, I looked up some percentage. I don't know, like 4% of my Instagram followers are from Brazil, let's say, which is more than from Holland. Yeah, because Holland is less, I think, than that. Uh, so it's it's that. And uh, so on YouTube as well, 
I, I was m mostly streaming with my friends. And uh, so I ended up streaming much more with uh, uh, Vidit and Sagar Shah than I did with Levi and uh, Hikaru. Well, I also streamed with Levi and Hikaru as well, um, a little bit, but, but less so um, somehow because I knew them less before the streaming as well. Yeah, so I'm less likely to. And so, yeah, I, I think because of a lot of these YouTube uh, collaborations as well, uh, that that happened. And also I, I have an Indian name because my father is from Nepal. My grandmother is Indian. So I have an Indian name. I look a little bit Indian. And uh, I, mean, I think that's also that also kind of impacts because people kind of still whatever they say on the, you know, on the surface, they still like to, uh, you know, to watch and follow similar faces and familiar names and remember familiar names better. You know, it's like, it's difficult for, um, for a European to remember some long Indian name, but I'm sure for Indians, it's much easier. So and the way around. So I guess that's just one of the reasons as well. Yeah, on a side note, uh, one of my favorite streams during the pandemic was you, Timur, Hikaru, and Levy playing four-player chess. That was pretty fun. Oh, yes, yes. Timur is also, by the way, one such uh, player who has a lot of Indian fans, also because of the YouTube uh, presence. And he doesn't... His name also, by the way, is a little bit Indian. Raja, yeah? If you go for Raja. Right. But no, it's not. It's not. It's, it's just, yeah, there is like... There are There is a big chess community in India. There is uh, also a significant one in the States. Uh, somewhat in America, but yeah, Europe, uh, especially if you split Europe by countries, a little bit less, uh, a little bit less. There are reasons like the, the place placement of chess um, within the society and uh, also in terms of, uh, yeah, let's say how much money a grandmaster can make uh, out of chess compared to a regular job that also impacts, of course. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, yeah. So maybe this is a good segue into another question that I wanted to ask. Um, this is from uh, from um, at Miss Panda two four one, and this says, um, "Does Anish have any interest in chess slash tech ventures like Magnus's Play Magnus Group or something related to chess or otherwise?" Yeah, that's a great question. By the way, um, very interesting topic, tech ventures related to chess. I have a lot of thoughts on that topic. It fascinates me, and it's one of my favorite topics. If you want, only small issue with that whole chess tech thing is that um, the money issue, basically. It's quite expensive uh, to build stuff, to build good tech stuff. And uh, within chess, there isn't that much money to lure these people into it uh, from some other big apps or big projects like whatever, Google, uh, you know, and, and, and such. Uh, I imagine there are, uh, you know, other major tech projects uh, and apps. So, but if we had unlimited resources of great programmers, just give me one and um, we will build some fantastic, fantastic chess tech. I think you're also an ambassador for Chessify, which is like AI, right? And it's, it's like a server side thing. Uh, the thing that I, I use Chessify for is, is the cloud engines. There's just... Um, that's not a particularly high tech thing. It's just uh, uh, them setting up a um, renting clusters, I think, of uh, of strong hardware on which they made uh, Stockfish to run, which is by the way, not that simple, but it's uh, but they've done that, done that, and they're renting that onwards to me. That's what I use it for. They have some high tech stuff as well. Um, as far as I know, I remember, for example, uh, you can use uh, you can search a position and you find the YouTube videos you know, on that position. And you can also, I think, scan a diagram and it will be uploaded onto your phone as a position that you can move, you know? 
uh, that is also really cool. So these are tech things. Uh, I, I think some other apps as well. Uh, I don't know who was first, honestly. Um, but I think the YouTube thing, I also saw it at Ginger Jam now. I don't know. There were multiple Yeah, projects. GHS. I yeah, get this G like, newsletter yeah. every week like with all my mm -hmm. horrible um, you know, positions in Rapid Games saying, oh, this is what you should yeah, play, Benoni. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. So, so there is some technology that going from one app to the other, and I don't know who was first. Uh, and it's not even that important because multiple people can come to the same idea. But I, I have many, many interesting uh, thoughts on this. Uh, and I, other ideas, uh, softwares that could be really beneficial for chess professionals and chess lovers. But it's just that I'm not going to, I, I don't have the, I cannot invest so much of my own money. And I don't think it's easy to find an investor who would, because it's very expensive, yeah, all this, because these tech guys, they can work uh, for other cool apps or for Netflix or whatever, and they can make much more money there uh, than doing some chess projects. So I, I think it's difficult to to get that going, but I, I'm really fascinated by that. It's, I have a lot of thoughts on chess tech and many, many really interesting programs and products that can be built around chess uh, using modern technology. Here's a question from at Chessfields, also a fellow podcaster. Uh, and JJ asks, at what point will Anish decide it is a better use of time and resources to invest in his kids chess development rather than his own? Do you say kids' chess development or kids your, yeah, development? your kids' chess development? Oh, do your kids I, play chess? Do your your or do you plan on letting your kids play chess? Oh, you know the moment. Sorry, the moment I read that question because sometimes I'm sloppy when reading, especially when we were on scrolling Twitter. I didn't even realize that I already thought the question was weird. Already thought it. I saw that you liked it, so I was thinking it's interesting you like it because I thought it's a very very weird to me. Like to me, it's a very weird question, but I didn't even notice the word chess in there. I've never I never look at. Uh, I don't look at life this way in mm -hmm. that in these in these terms. So I was very surprised with that. Um, so is the question like, at what point it's better for me to start coaching my kids at chess than to play chess myself, or or what? I think that was a question. I mean, I just thought it was an interesting question to ask. Uh, I mean, interesting in the sense that it's a creative question. Yes. Uh, yeah, but it's a, I find it a very strange question. I, I mean, even if we take it like, if you try to answer it uh, seriously, like. I don't think I'm the best coach. Uh, I think it requires we have very different qualities, yeah, to be a coach and experience as well. Mm -hmm. So if I want my kids to have a good coach, I wouldn't do it myself. I would uh, ask someone else. Um, and I also really don't see how I have to choose between one and the other. And also, I don't see it like okay. I understand the word investment into kids. It's like a thing, uh, like you know, you try to give your kids good education and all this. But still, I don't really like the that way because it, the, the phrasing, it sounds to me like kid is some kind of project in which you invest the money and then later try to cash it out. <laughs> well, I, I mean? think that the implication is like, um, I really, what I was wondering from this is, I mean, um, do you want your kids to be chess players? Or do you not really care? Yeah, that's, that's a more normal way of uh, phrasing a similar question. Uh, I don't have a desire. I, I think, you know, it, I'm a little hesitant in what sense, like it's completely up to them, first of all, anyway. And I don't see in my oldest son, who is a bit into chess, but I don't see uh, insane passion for it in him yet. And I think, and I heard, uh, uh, I, I don't know, like one of my um, uh, fellow top players child, uh, who is like really obsessed with chess already. So it, it can be, but it, my, yeah, my son doesn't seem to, he's interested, but not that much. So I don't expect him to be a top player. Um, but even if the kid has like insane uh, drive and talent and so on, like just if I look back at my own uh, 
career, how, how lucky I was uh, in so many junctions. Uh, it seems like, you know, that it's so unlikely that, yeah, everybody gets this fortunate. Um, but for sure, it would be cool if uh, my kid would, would, would try and I would definitely support him in, in that sense. Um, I don't think one needs to sacrifice anything for that. You can support your kid without having to compromise on your career. But yeah, I, I don't see that. I don't think it's likely. Like so far, he hasn't shown um, some insane interest. But I also actually started playing only at six, seven. So he's just five now, my oldest one. Well, that's why you were never world number one because you started uh, you started playing yeah. when you were six and not when you were two. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, but actually it's interesting that if you look at the top players and uh, yeah, the world number ones actually, and you see who started playing chess at what age, it's you see that actually it has very little impact who started at two or three and who started at uh, because there are people who started at two by the way, uh, and who started at six or even seven or even eight. I think Levon was relatively late i guess but i don't know what i don't remember maybe eight nine but it's interesting that these years from like two to let's say six or seven maybe like these are five years yet it seems that they're not as crucial if you look at the outcomes you know because magnus managed without these years um, and many others managed to be fine without so it's it's interesting it's interesting how yeah in general uh, how children uh, yeah, learn stuff. It is very interesting. Uh, yet it seems that the age between like 10, let's say, and 15 is like super crucial, I guess. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Hard to say. I'll just ask, uh, I'll ask two more questions. Um, this one is from Ilyas Nasrallah. Um, and he says, uh, if you look back on your career in 20 plus years, what memories apart from tournament victories will you cherish the most? These questions, you know, it's so early for me, I think. Uh, yeah, you're only 27, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's already we are celebrating my retirement. Um, <laughs> I don't know, it's uh, the memories in chess. Well, I met my wife through the chess tournament, for example. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope to make many more great memories uh, other than results. Yeah, there are some good stories. We had, for example, with my second, we have one, we have a few stories, you know, of like um, uh, when we, we had some success and... Uh, one when, for example, I had a very bad start and then I we managed to turn the event around or one time when uh, I prepared against a difficult opponent and we, we came up with some brilliant um, strategy and I managed to win largely thanks to that. So I have some of those moments, you know, where that I cherish. Um, and also a lot of fun actually happens at the training camps. A lot of fun stories at training camps, actually. That's that's a whole, whole like... Uh, you know, a special selection of uh, of fun in, in in my in my life. Like a lot of fun stuff happens at training camps for sure. Uh, so there will be many, but it's a bit early now to start. Uh, you know, start. You, you have a long good long career ahead. You have you had many many more years at the chessboard. So I didn't mean to freak you out or. <laughs> <laughs> no 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 no. But it's it's, it's normal. I'm mean, 27 years old. So uh, and I've played chess for at the top level already for like over a decade probably. Mm -hmm. And then yeah, it's normal that. Uh, well, you have something to look back at as well, so there's nothing strange about it. I guess I'll, I'll ask one more. This is uh, this is not something really that I find interesting, but I know maybe my listeners will like this. Uh, Stefano Zimmerman asks uh, at Stefano ZQG asks, "How is your relationship with Magnus?" Oh, it's very interesting. I think generally my relations with other top players uh, are always very interesting because 
on one hand you see each other really a lot and you uh, know each other a lot and you think about each other in, in, in a well not in a bad way uh, a lot because you're preparing yeah against the other and chess is not just a technical game it's also psychology so you'd really try to get into the head of your opponent um so you do spend a lot of time together uh, yet there is the competitive aspect so you're bound to have very interesting dynamic between the players and even those who say they are best friends there are many cases like um, for example, Kramnik and Gelfand, um, uh, Leko and uh, Aronian, uh, and many, many more. Those who are like very good friends yet compete at some point in their career a lot against each other. They have fascinating relations. Like, it's not just friendship; it's very different than friendship. There is that. There is always. Oh, Kramnik and Vichy is a great example. Also, like it's so complex. The competitiveness and the friendship intertwines and. Yeah, it just becomes really, really interesting. Like it's, it's very unusual. Although Kramnik and Anand now probably have maybe a easier. It's easier for them to be friends now. Yeah, but at the back of yeah, but there is always there will always be that inside. There will always be that um, competition, you know, for legacy. Even when they're done, you know, who was the you know the player of the <laughs> of the two thousand eight era or whatever. Like there, there is like always. Uh, no, there will always be some competition, uh, and and that's that's fascinating. You can still be on great terms and be great friends. So yeah, these things are really fascinating. The relations between, uh, and I, I think my uh, relations with Carlos, Carlson, I'm convinced they're developing. They're still mm -hmm. developing, and uh, I think it will be interesting to see what what will happen. Um, uh, yeah, what will happen later on. Uh, I, I hope to, you know, to have to stay competitive and um, uh, to beat him many more times because I think the relation is, between players is more fascinating when they compete with each other um, because the moment one establishes a clear superiority over the other, like a very clear one without, uh, of course he's superior to me, but uh, I can still bite sometimes. Yeah. But the moment I, I stop biting it, it will, yeah, that the intrigue will be gone. So that will be a pity. I really hope that I'll be able to be competitive still for, for the time to come. There's um yeah now I want to just kind of finish off with a couple more questions uh, just about you and, and your chest in general. Uh, again, on this late night podcast, you said something that was very interesting to me, which is that you would rather be um, world number one than uh, than world champion, um, because if you were world number one and you weren't the world champion, then the world championship would kind of have less meaning, like sort of like it did in the you know the late years with uh, let's say when Anand was world champion and Magnus was number one. Like I know that Kasparov, for example, he criticized. Uh, the Gelfand uh, Anand match, which I actually think is an incredibly underrated match in terms of like chess. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, he said, well, this isn't a real world championship match because the best guy isn't playing. Um, but I guess I was wondering, you know, right now, Magnus is clearly, you know, head and shoulders about above everyone um, as number one in terms of ELO. But we have seen him, like, let's say with Fabiano, um, we've seen him like almost people almost get there. So I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, what do you think it'll take for you to get to that that number one stratosphere? Like, what do you think you need to do to get there? Or is it a lot of luck and stuff like that? Well, not, not just luck. I mean, luck is, is a word that, you know, sounds yeah sounds like it comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I didn't mean to be like... Yeah, uh, no, for sure, for sure. But but of course, yes, there has to be... Things have to align, let's say, for sure. Things have to right. really align. Because when things align, I sometimes end up... Um, even the player that I, I was, let's say, I sometimes end up playing pretty, like, at pretty high level. And I was able to compete, let's say, with Magnus in many Vikings A tournaments. I um, played very well at the second half of the candidates. So when things really go well, um, I have like the right 
amount and dosage of confidence, which is not too much, not too little. My prep is kind of working out very well. Uh, I have also good uh, uh, dosage of like energy slash prep. Uh, you know, I, I'm not like too exhausted yet. I'm not too badly prepared. So like when when things really align, um, I think I'm able to do well. And I need that to happen at really right moments. So I would need uh, to peak when uh, my opponents are a little down as well. That would be nice. Then you can collect even more. Uh, because what you often see uh, when one dominates is because the others somehow all struggle a bit. Like now Fabi struggles a bit, you know, he struggles a bit. Already many tournaments, yeah, you can see like he wins some games but then he loses some because of some, like some, he struggles a little bit. Like he still works, you can see he works, he preps, um, but he struggles. The thing is a little bit in uh, a little bit in China, you know, so doesn't play so many things. Uh, Firuja now was about to do well and now again struggles. So Wesley has a good period now, but had a bad one before. So when everybody struggles and one is doing great, there appears some sort of domination. Domination is not there when somebody else is also doing well, because when, when Fabio was doing well, then Magnus was. So I, I, I guess that, yeah, it would have to be that I, I'm doing great, everything's going well, and somehow everybody else has some uh, has some things, you know, and and Magnus also has suddenly uh, an issue that he's very annoyed that, you know, uh, I'm tweeting and playing well at the same time, and it's very annoying for him. <laughs> <laughs> All this. I mean, it's in theory, it's possible, um, uh, I, I think, for sure. Uh, and one thing is that I have to really work hard and try to do my best, and I, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm doing my part, and I'm trying to always make sure I work in the most efficient way because it's easy to work, but uh, you shouldn't also do stupid things. Yeah, You have to go in the right direction. You shouldn't go in the wrong direction and keep going. You should go in the right direction. So I'm trying to like keep uh, fine-tuning my work uh, methods, work ethic, and just trying to yeah, I hope that everything works out. Um, uh, it's of course not easy because there's competition and um, many great players, as we have discussed. But I, I'm, I'm trying and I, I'm convinced that uh, it's very likely that it, it will happen. Now, another question I wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, not many um, players in the in the let's say the, the world elite have have uh, children, and you have. I was wondering how how did that um, how did becoming a father like impact your chess, or did it by and large stay the same? Uh, yeah, it didn't. Um, it imp impacted. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it it had maybe a more profound impact on a deeper level where I think about life more deeply because I think once you have kids, you rethink many things in your life uh, because you are as you try to let's say you think about their development, you rethink your development. You try to uh, you just look at things from a different perspective. You know. You realize the role of genetics uh, because you see it uh, much more. You realize the impact of the of others on people because you see it on your kids and so on. So you are just trying to like um, um, you change uh, yourself a lot. So in that sense, I'm sure I, I've yeah I gained some more understanding about about life and about things. Uh, whether yeah, an impact on chess is kind of hard to measure because um, uh, my wife is very much um, helpful in. Uh, well, helpful. I mean, it's the way around. Yeah, like uh, she is basically uh, taking care of, of children a lot. Uh, you have, of course, uh, many such families where one of the two parents um, is taking care more of the children, and the other is um, much more busy with the career. Um, it can, of course, we we commonly think of it as traditionally as it men being the one who works, but you also have even examples in chess world, yeah, where a woman is uh, the you know the one who is, is doing. Um, 
more in the professional field and the men is uh, more with, with, with children. But you have families where it's equal. I, I think if it, if it was more balanced, it would be harder for me because it would cost me much more. Um, I would have to adjust my uh, rhythm of training and playing a lot. So, uh, but the way uh, our relationship is and the way uh, my wife takes care of kids um, in terms of like how much time I spend on chess, how my professional chess life looks, it's um, it had uh, less impact than one would think it had. So I still do a lot of, yeah, I mean, I'm still a lot. Uh, a lot of my time is just being uh, alone with chess and uh, yeah, just uh, hoping that uh, my wife manages. And I'm of course, mostly getting all the, all the fun stuff with my kids, you know, just getting to play. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, but it had for sure an impact. Uh, not in the sense that, yes, I have less hours to study with the Berlin because that's not really the case, but more in a deeper sense, I guess, because chess, you know, it reflects your personality anyway. It reflects, um, because it's, it's complicated. It's not just, of course, there's technical aspects to it a lot, but at the highest level, when you're more or less roughly equal with all the opponents, all your, your you know, your, your person comes above and uh, psychology comes up. And, uh, and I think I'm sure that if you're changed as a person, your chess also changes. Yeah, that's uh, it's an amazing answer. Um, uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'll just ask uh, like two or three more questions. First of all, you know, you're you're obviously you've been at top level chess for many years, um, and we often see in classical chess, at least at the top level, that uh, you and as you said, you know, you play the same people for many years. Um, with this candidates, I think we're starting to see maybe some of the new faces of the guard with maybe guys like Rapport and Duda. But I'm wondering, who do you think? upon the up and coming players right now are people who are maybe destined to be in the, like the world elite next. Yeah, it's a good question. Of course, there's always generational shift and I've experienced some when I came, uh, when I came, uh, Vichy and Kramnik were uh, at the absolute peak. Uh, and uh, Carlson was rising, rising, uh, and still Gelfand and Ivanchuk were Morozevich also were all the way up there. Aleko as well. Now many of these players they've uh, they've dropped in the ranking, you know, for some more, some some less, but still the the, the top ten landscape changed. So these things they definitely change, and uh, it's inevitable that there comes a new generation um, that will fight for the spots in the top ten, top twenty. Firuja already is very high rate ranked, so we don't have to count him. From those who have already seen some results, I, I've noticed results, of course, of um, Arjun Arigaisi from, from India. He's, like the first time I thought that he did something remarkable was when he played Levon Aronian in a rapid match, and he sort of played more or less on equal terms. And that really impressed me because, I mean, I know Levon, uh, and if you play on equal terms with Levon, whatever game it is, uh, rapid or blitz or whatever, then you're really good. Um, and indeed, very quickly after that, he gained like lots of points and lots of uh, other re results. Uh, also, other Indian players did well, Prague and Nihal and so on. Uh, some, uh, uh, there are also a couple of youngsters from Uzbekistan. Um, Abdus Satorov become world rapid champion. So must be also very promising. Uh, there are some uh, Russian players. Yesipenko already quite matured. Mm. And you have some youngsters there, like Sarana. You have, of course, those who have like even older, like Artemiev. But already at this point, uh, it seems that his chess has, yeah, he, it's kind of defined itself, and uh, they, he has certain traits that are kind of hard to 
yeah, to change, but maybe he also can still fight for uh, the highest places. And otherwise, yeah, I'm sure I'm forgetting many. Okay, there is, of course, some youngsters like um, from Germany, Vincent Keimer is the most um, high-rated one right now. I, I would just look at the top 20, you know, under 20 juniors, and I think they're, they're all, it's inevitable that some of them will make it to the mm -hmm. very top. Probably not all, because it's always difficult. Like uh, in my generation also, like there were players who did better than others. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's normal. Yeah, and the, the last question I want to ask you um, for today, because I know it's been uh, taking a lot of your time, I'm sure. You got to do some, uh, you know, work analyzing the Berlin probably or something like that. For sure. Um, <laughs> Um, well, you, you and your wife are both chess ball authors. You've wrote, you've written four chess ball courses, I think. Um, uh, you know, I'm contractually obligated by my chess ball overlords and Magnus Carlsen <laughs> himself to, uh, to talk a little bit about chess balls, but, um, are you working on another course right now? Are you allowed to review uh, that? Yeah. First of all, uh, in terms of, uh, contractual obligation, I think it's also very interesting. What is Magnus's role in, in uh, in the company yeah? because it is quite interesting i i'm not quite sure uh, i understand it myself but like uh yeah like what is the hierarchy of all this you know like the shareholders and like it's very interesting and who is the uh, who is the ambassador and like to which yeah you know how much of what magnus does uh, is impacted by the group and how much of what group does impacted by him that's interesting but that aside uh, in terms of chessable courses, yeah, first of all, they're also, I've written, but also recorded them, yeah, because these are also video courses. And recording is a large part of it, a lot of our recording hours. I did uh, so far the Black Repertor against 1e4. The, I did the French, the Knight of the Dragon. It so happened that they're all Repertors against 1e4. Uh, that, that's that's was sort of a coincidence because I had reasons for each of, of them. And uh, against 1d4, only my wife did a repertoire on the QGA. I haven't yet done one. It's difficult for me to find uh, the topic uh, that I like other than QGA. And like I like the Greenfield as a topic, but uh, Siedler did one course, which is uh, quite recent and quite popular as well. Um, so I, the next, I started doing the E4 courses. So first I did the E4 part one, which covers E4, E5. So ma mainly Italian, uh, but also a lot of other things like Philidor, Petrov, and all this E4, E5 business. It's a very big course. Um, so that's why it was a separate part. And uh, I have to complete the E4 repertoire. So I, I, I guess it will be two more chapters because you have the Sicilian, which is very big. And you have also other things like French, Karokan, the Alekhine, and uh, Scandinavian. So I think yeah, my next two are going to be the part two and part three, I think, of the one E4 repertoire. And... Uh, after that, we'll see um, what happens. But for now, th these are the projects. Wow, very interesting. Uh, yeah, well, uh, actually, I bought your dragon course, and uh, I know some people are—they uh, don't like the way you treated the dragon. But for me, I think it is—it's—I've never seen a positional dragon like that before. I think it's extremely fascinating. Yeah, but these people are like—they don't really understand. Uh, it's actually very interesting to look at the openings from a more fundamental point of view. I think in general, to look at chess at, at a more at a deeper level, not just you know, dragon whatever sounds uh, like you attack and so on, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so it must be like fire coming out of the mouth, like you know, there are fundamental things like pawn structure, um, piece development, and and if you look at chess at a more deeper level, um, at, at openings at more deeper level, uh, you. Not in the sense that, you know, E4, C5, but in the sense that, okay, E4, and you, you grab space in the center, yeah, you put a pawn in there, then you go C5 because, because you control the D4 square with the, via, you know, via the side. It's not just you play C5, you know, it's not A5, it's C5 because 
So there is a reason to everything and to every move, and there is a certain point. And the dragon as well, um, if you look at it, it's it's the structure in which your pawns are on the first three ranks. Not, none of the pawns is going above. So all the pawns are kept very close to you. And it makes it ensures that there are no weaknesses, yeah, because there are no weak squares. And when there are no weak squares, you have good pawn structure as a, as a tendency. Well, it's definitely a good thing to enter an endgame. So generally, if it was possible in Dragon to right away take off the queens, everybody would take off the queens with black because that's the right thing to do, structurally speaking. And so the reason it becomes sharp is because white has to do something to counter the structural superiority of the dragon because the black pawn structure is better. Also, you have one more pawn in the center, which is a good thing. And that's the case in most of the Sicilians. So to counter that, white is going castling long and tries to use the fact that we have the bishop on g7 and, and pawn on g6 as a target, right? Because h4, h5 comes target the pawn on g6. I hope some people who can follow blindfold a little bit will still appreciate this. Um, and so white is the one who says, hang on, I'm not going to let you just calmly finish development and be doing very well. I'm going to start the attack. Now, as white starts the attack, black cannot just sit and wait. And black starts a counter play. Well, if white starts attack right away, black starts counterplay in the center with d5. While if white goes bishop c4, which prevents that, then we create that leads to Yugoslav attack, which is then black unable to counter in the center, starts countering on the queen side. Because white also lost some time with the bishop, with bishop on c4. The bishop c4 is not played because bishop c4, bishop is killing on c4. It does not attacking f7. Nobody cares if it attacks f7 because I have rook and king protecting it, and knight is on d4. So the reason white goes bishop c4 is to stop d5. And as he stops d5, well, we are looking for counterplay because white started attack on the king side. And so we are going for attack on the queen side. And so logically, most of the games, what happens is that we get sharp play because white attacks on the king side, black on the queen side. But it started, in essence, with the fact that black played a very positionally sound system. And so, yeah, of course, if, if well, you should be happy with it. And so that's why, yes, many uh, in many lines, you see... Uh, there are end games where I'm going for end games, and I'm very happy with black in end games. Of course, you should be. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, of course, the very sharp lines were uh, an opposite colored, uh, sorry, opposite side castling. Uh, many of them they just don't work for black. Just getting checkmated, white is faster. So uh, there are very few lines where um, I recommend unsound attacks because yeah, I also the thing is I don't want to recommend some repertoire. It's called lifetime repertoire, and then people just check with engine, and then it's refuted, and they're losing all their games. A lot of the ideas you just explained, I've never heard in the dragon. Like I've never actually put it together about about like. So I actually really appreciate that because, um, you know. But even like when you say the dragon, right? The dragon name does not come from the fact that it's a fire opening. It's a pawn structure around the king. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. You know, this it, is interesting. Yes, because uh, you think that we put a bishop on g seven to fire at the white king. But okay, why does the white king go long in the first place? In the e four e five openings, the king never goes to the long. Almost never. The white king never goes long. So we don't put the bishop on g7 because it's firing against the long castled king, which hasn't even cast long. So it's like, it's interesting to look at the chess openings from a more fundamental point of view without thinking of assumptions that we already have. Just looking at the board, at the rules, and what's the point and why. And uh, and then it becomes actually quite simple very often. It's, mostly, it's about, uh, mostly it's about control of the center, about development of the pieces. And the control of the center, development of the pieces, and the post structure especially the pawn structure, that dictates the plans. 
Um, and the fact who wants to trade which pieces, because that's also what chess, a lot of chess is about that. You have to trade the right pieces. And a queen trade is also like a very important, um, well, very important part of the game. So who wants to trade queens? I mean, that, that defines a lot of things as well. So it's, it's quite interesting. I, I like to think about, uh, like to think sometimes, sometimes uh, of chess in a sort of a more fundamental way, not without the assumption, but more like what is exactly the point of the, of the opening moves and, or, I think that's that's interesting. Yeah, it's a fascinating. It really is fascinating because um, you, you you explain it so simply, and but then somehow chess, um, you know, somehow then I'll go and play the dragon. I'll just play like a, like an idiot. So you know, it's uh, that's really yeah. The yeah but at of least chess. you know, but at least you know, you know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, you know what's going on. Um, yeah, no, it, it is definitely. Um, and when you explain things, I had that once happen to me when I was explaining something to my wife uh, about one position because she asked me something. Uh, I wanted to uh, prepare her for some game a long time ago. And uh, I explained her some position. And as I tried explaining it, I realized that what I'm saying doesn't make sense. And so I said, okay, we put rook on C. She says, okay, why don't we put rook on B8? And uh, because, you know, we, we wanted to play B5 before, right? And I was like, yeah, but we put rook on C8. And then I was like, okay, what am I saying? Why am I saying, like, why not rook B8? So then I put rook, played rook B8. And as I saw the engine evaluation change, like, I realized, okay, wow, interesting. And... What happened actually is that I introduced like this, this with her help, uh, it helped me introduce the entire new plan in the H3 E6 Nidor that I played against Vishanan then. And then Grishuk joined. And like there was a whole wave of H3 E6 Nidor played in an entirely new way with instead of going Rook C8, we just were going Rook B8 and preparing B4 in the CC then. So sometimes when you try to explain things to someone or to yourself, you just realize, yeah, you know, sometimes the simple things, yeah, it's just uh, they're the right things. Uh, and at least if you don't play rugby, you should know why you don't play rugby. There has to be a reason. So it's interesting for sure. And that's also what I like about doing chessboard courses. They, um, when I try to explain something to someone, I realize I understand it better myself. I will just say that, uh, that you know, I'm, I'm going, you know, these lifetime repertoires, they're really these, you know, they're dense courses. I don't know if they're necessarily, I mean, not to, not to say, you know, I love chessable, um, but, uh, they, they're really hard to get through. I mean, if you really want to learn them and make them like a lifetime thing. So I'm taking my sweet, sweet time, but I've really enjoyed that course. And, uh, you know, uh, guys, if you want to check out Anisha's courses on Chessable, uh, chessable.com, uh, check them out. They're great courses. The courses that will last for a lifetime. I don't know if there's anything you want to add about your courses. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think when we speak about the, the course, because they did large, like you have to, uh, uh, there is the quick starter, um, I think. And uh, that's where you try to, put everything into one hour. At least I try to put it into one hour. And so the quick starter gives you really like a head start. So after starting the quick starter, you can already start playing it. And then you can add other um, lines to the repertoire. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think that that's, that's also important because the courses do look really, really large. And uh, yeah, you have to add layer, layer by, by layer. And also in the Dragon, um, I also have a chapter about the Dragodorf. That's where you play G6 and A6 at the same time. And I, it's a, nobody speaks about that, but I think it's a very important chapter because there I do what uh, many people want me to do. There I give them hope. <laughs> I, I just say, you put the bishop here, you put the rook here, you go B5 and you crush. And uh, then I say that, okay, it's not so simple, but I gave you the reality you know, uh, of the dragon um, in the main part of the course. But if you want to live in the illusion world where you are checkmating everyone, uh, then here you go, play this, that. And you will checkmate most of your opponents. But those who will check it all with engine, they will find flaws because, yeah, there's no illusion world. You cannot crush with black. So against the best play. 
but I, I also have that. And I, I think it's like, nobody mentions that, but I, I think it's nice. It's a cool chapter, the Dragodorf. I, I really think it's a very interesting. It's also what Magnus played a couple of games with at some point, a very cool opening. That, that's also part of the course. Um, so I, yeah. Uh, Honestly, I, I haven't even seen courses. the Dragondorf lines in there. I haven't even looked at those yet. Now that's something ah, I now because probably nobody got to the end of the. <laughs> no, but actually, <laughs> in the jokes aside, I personally try to make my courses compact. I saw people who do like fifty uh, hours of video, but my biggest course, neither of is twenty-four hours. So I make the joke that if you start today, you will by tomorrow at the same time you will be done. Um, and Dragon is even smaller than twenty-four hours. Yeah, I actually don't have the video for for any of the courses. I think Erwin's I have Erwin's Karakon. I'm a Karakon player actually, mm-hmm. and uh, Erwin, your your trainer, he's he also will be coming to the podcast. Uh, just a little spoiler at some point in the next uh, few weeks. Mm-hmm. But um, Erwin's Karakon course is massive. It is really massive. Like uh, it's, it's on the bigger side. There are even bigger ones nowadays. Yeah, um, it's crazy. It's but it's on crazy. the bigger side for sure, for sure. Uh, again, he has the the thing is though you should realize that besides he has this quick starter thing. But also a lot of alternatives. So if you remove all the alternatives and you only study one line, it will be much smaller. But he adds alternatives. So you should add, of course, you should first study the course and then add alternatives. But his it, alternatives yeah. are fantastic. I, I mean, very I've, good. I've won. Yeah. I've won some some amazing wins uh, and just so many ideas. Like like one thing that I've talked about on the podcast with people is like you know you don't have to uh, you don't have to treat the these things like a textbook. A lot of the times you can just go go through the courses a couple of times and find the ideas you need because you're not you, you know let's say me I'm about 2000 2100 ish between there on on you know rapidjust.com i'm not going to be playing these like you know mainline like nidor french stuff um but the ideas are the same like to throw a knight on a3 in the tartakovar karakon for example uh like like or not a3 sorry like knight h what is it it's like uh yeah knight a6 to knight c7 yeah knight a6 knight c7 some kind of reroute like this he has in the opening it's it's this really uh interesting maneuver i never seen before and i i don't get the exact position but i get the same ideas and so um I don't know. I think the, these chessable lifetime repertoires are fantastic. I mean, I'm not just being paid to say that. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can. I mean, basically, you can use it as as you want. Like, uh, I, for example, buy the, all these things just uh, for other purpose. I don't go over opening um, courses with the move trainer very often. I rarely do it. Like, I I just want to scan for certain critical positions. You know, uh, that interest me. Do uh, you have people who like buy it and religiously go do move trainer over absolutely everything? You have also those. Uh, and you have people in the middle and like, yeah, you, you can use it in any way you want, of course. But um, of course, the traditional way or the way it's meant to be is that you've got that smooth trainer and you just religious, religiously go over everything and you become a beast. Actually, it's quite hard. You know, one time I played the, in online Olympiad, played the guy, I was 2200 rated. So, okay, I already had the best start. I, I was in awful shape somehow. I it was an online Olympiad. I don't know. I was completely out of focus. And I played, okay, finally, I thought, okay, easy opponent, I'm white, 2200, so at least I'll get a win in the end. So I start playing, and he just blitzes out this dub of Tarash thing, Com- without thinking, just blitzes out as if it's like, as if I'm the move trainer, you know? He starts throwing all the moves at me, already quite annoying, and then I'm like, okay, whatever. So then I end up in some position that I also know, and, okay, I play a little bit off, I make a couple of weird moves, and he does all the all the good moves and crushes me. So first of all, I think, okay, what the hell happened? Why why did twenty two hundred play so well? <laughs> then I realized, well, you know, he just followed Erwin's Duke of Tarash course. He just followed all the arrows that he drew in, in in the end. All the pieces went to these squares, and because I was a little bit off, I just lost. You know, he didn't even have to do anything. Like so, it, it can be it can be. Or when I played the other day, I played some few bullet games with Camille Plista. 
it's impossible. I mean, he's throwing at you some kind of theory, like some random courses that he did that I didn't even uh, all look at in detail. And like all kinds of nasty, annoying things that in Bullet I'm not able to. And I, it cost me also a lot of points because he gains a lot of time on the clock, uh, confidence, and gets a good position, starts with a head start. And if the difference in strength is not too big, uh, Camille is like an international master, I think, right? Something like that. Uh, and his Bullet skills are decent. He was able to take still a lot of points from me, uh, mostly thanks to his uh, opening prep. To be honest, I mean, I think so. I think it was mostly thanks to that. So it can have also good practical impact. Uh, those who like, who memorize all this stuff, it, it can definitely play a role. Of course, if you are like much weaker, if you are like, uh, I don't know, if you are untitled and 1500, whatever opening, you know, I'll crush you anyway, uh, easily. But if you are like just, you know, 300 points below, then it can definitely compensate for a lot, for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, that's why I think, you know, you'll be seeing me on, on, you know, chess.com blitz or whatever. And, you know, you'll be, we'll be duking it out and, you know, I'll crush you. Yeah. How's that possible? Sound? Possible. But you've got to do your move trainer of, uh, yeah, I, courses, I gotta, otherwise yeah. no chance. <laughs> I gotta do, yeah, I gotta do my Kamil Plichta, uh, move trainer. And also yep. I gotta get a lot yep. better at end games. That's the other thing you, you do all this opening work and you get into these end game positions and you just lose them. And that's that's never fun. So. Okay, but you need to know that, like, also the end games. You know, some people who are new to chess, they say like, uh, like king and two bishops against king is an end game. There's not an end game. That's the end of the game. A king queen against king is an end game. No, it's not an end game. It's just a king and queen against king. You have to. It's not know your end games. You have to know how to convert a position up a queen or like up a rook, king rook against right. king. This is not called an end game. End game is more nuanced. End game is king rook and two pawns against king rook and one pawn. That's like end game, you know. Um, and of course, okay, you have to know this, uh, the basics. You definitely have to know the basics for sure. Uh, you have to like to play chess. Like first, you have to know the rules and you have to know the basics. That's where we so start. You would consider like king like. Uh, Rook two pawns versus rook and one pawn is a, is a basic end game for you. No, no, that's not the basic end game. That's that's real end game that you have to like. Mm -hmm. That can be very nuanced. It depends on the pawn positions, but some can be so hard that uh, even I don't remember them and I have to again think. And it can be nuanced, but I I mean that okay. You have to definitely so you learn the rules, you learn the opening principles, and you learn how to convert king and rook against king, uh, and all these things. Once we get that done, okay, then you learn openings, not just opening principles, and then and you learn the end games. But like end games, it means end games, yeah. Like, yeah. But the basics you have to you have to know, of course, for sure. Uh, so like people who like play chess and uh, don't know how to mate king rook against king, and they and they say something about chess improvement. Uh, I, I I you know ban those people because you have to like have the basics like in place. That has to be if you want to speak about chess improvement. You have to have all the basics like the checkmating stuff, the mating patterns, and all that. Um, you have to know the forks and all this like that. Yeah. You, at first, yes. Basically chess is like the, you need some basic techniques. You have to do the tactics, uh, the basic tactics. You have to go through the motions. At some point you, you go through all the motions, the end games, the tactics, and you, then you know the basics and you can start adding knowledge and then you can form a character of your own. You can form a style of your own, but before you get there, you have to have the basics covered if you are like a real amateur. Well, there you have it, guys. Um, that's uh, that's Chess Improvement 101 from Anish Giri for all you hashtag adult improvers out there. Um, hashtag, uh, you know, um, yeah, I don't know if you 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 uh, know about the hashtag Wait, adult improvers. No, there's, yes, yeah, there's another one. Hashtag, chess punks. Chess punks, chess punks, that one. Yes, yes. <laughs> Are you a chess punk? 
<laughs> I don't know. That's a good. That's a good thing for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't. <laughs> Not yet. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. No, but it's for... cool. It's cool. I, there was like at some point my Twitter algorithm cracked and started showing me all of that, like this dark side of just punk Twitter. It cracked, and it's like I started seeing every day these posts, and I was like, wow, there's so much out there. There is. <laughs> it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Anish, uh, I don't want to uh, take up too much more of your time, uh, but uh, it's, uh, this was a really fun podcast. I hope every, all my listeners enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed. hope you'll come back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, this was, this was uh, this one of my favorite episodes I've, I've done. I'll just say that uh, live on, on the air. Um, thank so you very flattering. Th- thank you. Yeah. I want to thank uh, everyone for listening. Uh, you can check me out on Twitter at 64podcast. Check out Anish on Twitter at... I don't need to advertise your Twitter. I mean, like, you need to advertise my Twitter. No, right? no, no. It helps. It helps. It helps. <laughs> but, uh, that's, that's how... How do you think I got there? Every yeah. single podcast I do... They all advertise my Twitter. That's how I made it. At Anish Giri. Um, you know, just it's Anish's name. You, you got you got to check out Anish's, you know, I think you're like one of the biggest uh, people. If you are not following Anish on Twitter and you're a chess fan to any degree, you have to follow Anish on, on Instagram, everything. I follow you on all the social media I have for many years. Uh, one of the best chess social media presences, period. Um, buy Anish's courses on Chessable. Go to chessable.com slash 64 podcast if you want to find my favorite Chessable courses. I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the podcast as always. I want to thank everybody who Check us out on Patreon. If you like what you listen to, check us out. Patreon.com slash 64 podcast. Little as a dollar a month to support the podcast financially. Uh, Anish, any last words? No, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I hope I didn't speak too much. It's a problem. I always tell myself before podcast, don't speak too much this time. And I always end up talking too much. I'm so sorry. No, you shouldn't apologize at all because the guest speaking too much is never a problem. Uh, and you, I don't think you spoke too much. I think this, I think this was, I was definitely perfect. did. I definitely did. I was not the plan and I always end up doing that. I'm really sorry. No, no, it's no problem. Um, it's better to speak too much than too little on a podcast. I'll say that much. Um, <laughs> no, but this was, this was great. And I, I really hope you guys enjoyed and uh, I'll be back soon for another episode of the podcast. So uh, until next time, guys, take it easy.